Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Architect Podcast, episode 165. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we discuss a case study about planning your digital archaeological strategy. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everybody. Paul, how's it going? It's going pretty good. Yeah, I'm uh, just chilling at home right now, working on a bunch of projects because I've got a big project coming up that uh, I'll like to tell you a little bit about. How are you doing? Where are you? We are currently in Tucson, Arizona. I'm looking out the front window of my RV right now at a whole bunch of saguaro cactuses. We're literally surrounded. We're oh, nice. right outside the national park, which is not a closed national park like a lot of them are. You can just drive right through this thing. They have a visitor center where you can go in and pay a fee if you're going to be ethical about it. And, and I think they've got some camping in other parts of the year and stuff too. But we're actually in a campground that's basically, it's not part of the park. It's in the Tucson Mountain Park, it's called. It's more of a county or maybe a state thing. I don't really know. But it's exactly the same as the national park because I can probably see the national park, you know, a few hundred feet away. <laughs> it's not that far. <laughs> so really cool area, though. We've seen coyotes. We've seen the cactuses are just or cacti, if you will, are just crazy. I was walking out of the car the other day and a piece of choya, if you've ever come in contact with that, got I didn't realize it, but clipped onto my heel. And then when I moved my right foot past my left ankle as you walk it jammed into my ankle and then I had to basically sit down and pull spine by spine as it was already Ah. well embedded this choya spines out of my ankle (laughs) yeah sounds like you're having a great time Uh, welcome to the desert there you go so (laughs) how was that uh shovel protesting project that we talked about last time how'd that go it went great you know it's crm project so I can't talk about it in too much detail but you know, you helped settle my nerves a little bit. And I went up there <laughs> and it was a small crew, just four of us total, including the field director, the uh, field supervisor. And yeah, what a great bunch of guys. Um, so we did some, you know, it was hard work uh, digging a lot of holes in the fields, mm-hmm. some in woods, usually in rose bushes, wild rose bushes, which are my new best worst friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I, I, I don't like them. And yeah. we didn't find anything. I think I can say that because mm-hmm. I haven't said where or why or with whom, but it was so much fun though. I, I've always liked field work and you know, and I think you got a sense of that when I was out in Nevada with you. I just kind of enjoy being in the field. And this was the same sort of thing. Very, very different conditions, very, very different kind of work. But um, but it was fun. It just feels healthy. And mm-hmm. then in the evenings, I sit around with the guys on the porch and drink some beers and talk archaeology. Nice. And they're really, really bright. So we had some interesting discussions about 
the various kinds of archaeology, archaeology in different parts of the world, differences between academic and CRM archaeology. Uh -huh. So I just filled my head every night with different ideas and things I hadn't thought of and new new things to learn. And uh, it was just, it was a blast. Nice, nice. That's really cool. You know, I'm, I'm curious if you guys saw any of these. I worked in Vermont one time. That's really my only Northeastern archaeology experience. It was just mm -hmm. outside Burlington and then outside Stowe a little bit. And one of the things, like at the Burlington part, whatever, we were under a transmission line, didn't see much. It was all basically cleared out for access to the transmission line. But then a small mm -hmm. contingent of us went out near Stowe and were basically I have no idea why we were digging where we were digging, but we were traipsing through the woods across property lines and other things. And we would cross when we were going to like little areas where we were shovel testing. We weren't grid shovel testing. We were spot shovel testing. And I'm not again, I have no idea why we were doing that. But we would cross these like stone fences that are sometimes a couple hundred years old. And yep. you worked with us in Nevada. Every time we crossed a road, we had to think, hey, we should record this because it's probably historic. But we didn't even give those stone fences a second thought <laughs> when we yeah. were on that no, project. We had, <laughs> we had two of those on the property that we were on, both yeah. of them just inside the woods. And basically, they bounded a drainage okay. and then the fields on either side. And I, we didn't bother recording them. It didn't hmm. really matter insofar as the scope of the project. And yeah. I'm totally familiar with those because every time I go hiking in this area, and like I said before, it's only half an hour north of where I live, that's how all the woods are. They're just littered with old yeah. stones because all the woods around here are second growth. Right. Sure. So at some point it was farmland and, you know, Poor farmer, 100, 150, 200 years ago, went with his oxen and you know piled up all the rocks <laughs> that they yep. could get out. And it's very rocky soil. Um, you know, it's pretty good loam, but it's tons of rocks. I think yeah. mostly glacial, glacial deposits. I'm not certain. I think you're probably I right. Know better. But, yeah. uh, you know, of all sorts of different kinds. You know, so we get slate, we get chunks of granite, we get river cobbles, little broken bits of this and that, lots of quartz pieces. You know, just all mixed up. Every shovel has stones mm. in it. Every hole that you dig is going to have a lot of that stuff. And then, you know, they're the bigger ones and they're the frost heaves that lift out the bigger and the smaller ones to the surface. So if you want to farm, you got to get those things out of the way. So that's what we have. It's kind of a feature of this part of the Northeast. And mm -hmm. I'm not at all surprised that you found the same thing up in Vermont. I mean, it's yeah. different up there, but not radically different in terms of when people moved in and what they were doing. People, meaning Europeans farming. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to the populations that were here before, and that's a whole other can of worms. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, I have no idea. I would see one of those things and was like, "Look at this! This is super cool!" And they're like, "Yeah, we'll keep walking, buddy. We're not to the shovel testing area yet." So I'm like, "All right." So yeah, had no idea. Yeah, no. I mean, I ran into two barbed wire lines, mm -hmm. and we didn't have to even record those. And that's something that we would have in many cases in Nevada have recorded if they were, you know, on yeah. wooden posts as opposed to metal posts. Oh, sure. Actually, I literally ran into one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah. didn't expect that here, but it was right along one of those stone walls in the woods. The vegetation just reminds me of another really quick story. Working in, I want to say, either South Carolina or Georgia, I think it was South Carolina, vines and prickly bushes and things are just the name of the game. And if you don't have a, a machete or something else on you, then you're using like your shovel to basically hack brush when you're trying to walk your line to your next shovel test. And I'll never forget 
thinking I wanted to, I wanted to stay on transect and I went and I, we had these little box screens, not like the big stand up ones. So we were carrying just little box screens and I, I hucked the box spring, a box screen up over this series of vines to kind of stay on transect because I had to go way around this. I just couldn't get around this brush. And of course it got stuck like 15 feet up in the air in this brush. And then I was like, ah, son of a, I was trying to pull down the, the vines to, to get the, the screen out. So then I threw my shovel at the screen to try to knock that out. And the shovel got stuck up there. <laughs> and it took me like another 30 minutes just to get them both down. <laughs> I, was like, uh, I was like, I'm going to Nevada. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, well, we had lots of that. It was the, the brush gets really uh, dense and yeah. everything. The, the more dense it is, the more thorns and prickers there are. I'm oh, convinced. Yeah. Oh yeah. One thing yeah. actually I did want to mention that I really liked about the way that they had is that the GIS team pre-plotted in collector the locations oh. of the shovel tests. So then we went out with iPads and with the GPS on the iPads, you basically plop yourself on the point. So rather than mm-hmm. having to walk a transect, you know, with uh, your compass to sight a line down there and then pace oh, out, and stuff, you just go until it lights up green and then you tap, add a new layer. They had all the different kinds of points pre-programmed. So, nice. you know, once I dug, if it was a positive shovel test or a negative shovel test, I just added the right kind of point and then the, all the different descriptors. Well, it sounds like that company has a really good digital archaeology strategy. And hey, nice segue. <laughs> I don't know if they've read this article. My guess is they've been doing that for a long time. And, you know, a lot of people could take a page out of their methodology. But that's what we're going to talk about today is an article from the SA Archaeological Record. And I'll let Paul introduce it because he found it. Okay, so uh, found it. It showed up in my email <laughs> inbox, thanks to the SAA. It's right. in the latest edition of the SAA Archaeological Record, and the name of the article is Why Digital Archaeology? A Case Study from Monte Alban, Oaxaca, by Mark N. Levine and Alex E. Badillo. And short little read, anybody that has access to this and that listens to our podcast, I think we'll find this interesting. You can blow through it pretty quickly, but it just gives an example, a case study and an argument too. And the argument is what I found the most interesting for how they went about their research design and why they think that digital archaeology is a valid framework. So the first thing that before I even got into the article, just reading the, the intro, <laughs> it reminded me of, you're familiar with ODATE, right? The, yeah, yeah. I think we've talked it, about The it. Open Digital Archaeology Textbook. And yeah. so Sean Graham et al., right in their intro, they have a pretty robust argument defense of digital archaeology as its own term. And this is long-term listeners to this podcast know, you and I say that digital archaeology might be kind of an anachronistic term now because everybody does stuff mm-hmm. digitally. But ODATE and also this article take a slightly different turn, which is that just because you're doing stuff with computers doesn't make it digital. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're complaining about, I think. Yeah. You can't call it digital just because you did part of it, you know, in a GIS or you did part of it with a database. Certainly not if you did it with, you know, Excel or word processor, because those are just taken for granted at this point. But this article says, hey, if you think about digital all the way through, digital archaeology is still a valid framework for approaching your work. And Mm -hmm. then they, of course, they illustrate it with what exactly they were doing. Right. So that's 
Yeah, that's exactly what they start out saying that, you know, most archaeologists when they and, and I don't know what they mean by most or how much research they did on that. But I would probably say it in the CRM, at least it's probably true that a lot of archaeology projects, there's a research design based around the literature search, the common questions for that area. A lot of times in CRM, the controlling agencies have contexts that have been written for certain areas and you'll read those historical or prehistorical contexts and you'll come up with a research design based on that. And there are going to be a lot of questions based around, you know, transportation and subsistence and, you know, just things like that. And that's, that's typically where the, the strategizing kind of ends. <laughs> it's like, okay, let's go dig some holes. Let's go do some survey. Let's go do some whatever. But having a, a, an actual strategy around the field work and around the questions that you want to answer that does have a digit a heavy digital component is actually a really good idea because there's certain things that the authors highlight that you may not even have thought about to, to do. Now, there's some things we're going to talk about in here that if they hadn't actually pre-planned their digital strategy, especially flying all the way to Mexico, because it doesn't sound like they live there. So they fly all the way to Mexico. They got to bring equipment with them. They wouldn't have known what to bring efficiently. They can't just bring everything. So they would have known what to bring, how to use it, how to maximize the time that they have there in order to actually answer some of the questions and produce some of the things that they did without coming up with this strategy. Right. Now, a key factor in what their defense of that term, quote unquote, digital archaeology, and what they illustrate in this is that their data collection is all born digitally, right? It's yes. born digital. And that just kind of naturally leads them in the kinds of questions they're asking and the kinds of tools they want mm -hmm. to use all the way through collection, processing, analysis, and presentation all stay within a digital or digital adjacent realm. Which I think is absolutely valid. And I, and I don't fault them for calling it digital archaeology. I, fault, I don't fault anybody for calling their work digital archaeology. I just think that it deserves a little pushback if you're calling it digital and all you're doing is collecting your data on an iPad in the field. That's the big digital part mm -hmm. of it. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. born digital. And that's a good use of digital tools, but I don't think it sets you apart anymore. And so what they're trying to do is show that a research design that end-to-end -end is digital that can still be this digital mm -hmm. archaeology. Yeah, and one of the links that we have in here came from the article is for the Monte Alban Digital Archaeology Project. There's a website, the, the MADAP or however you say that project. And I understand in a 2021, from an SEO standpoint, putting digital archaeology in the title of your website and probably all over the website, because there's still a lot of people searching the terms digital archaeology when they don't really know what they're looking for. They, there's too many technological avenues that you could go down. And it's just like, what do I even do? I don't know what to type in. I don't know what a volumetric study is based on 3D photogrammetry. How would I even know that? So I'm going to type in digital archaeology and see what other people have done. So I get that. But I, I do hope more to our original point of our criticism of the term digital archaeology that we can, we can just go to a website called the Monte Alban Archaeology Project and there would be a heavy digital component that is just part of it because we would expect that. So, you know. Yeah, I think that expectation kind of comes and goes depending on how your your data are being generated. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're dealing with a project that's that has legacy materials, it, it can't be born digital, right? It's all on, on index cards and field notebooks and such. You can digitize it and then turn it into digital, but it's not going to be born digital. If you're doing excavation, 
you know, it can only be so digital <laughs> because you can't excavate <laughs> digitally yet. Yeah. So, so I think that there's, there's, there's a lot of gray here, but again, I, uh, I like their approach in defense of the use of that term of saying, Hey, we're going to do this end to end. And so for that, for me, as opposed to you just want it to be the, the Monte Alban archeological project. I don't mind that D that digital archeology span in there <laughs> in this particular case, because this particular project is heavily foregrounded with the digital. It is. It is. So let's go ahead. Uh, we're going to take a break here, but while we're on break, in case you are, you know, at your computer or smartphone and clicking on some of these links, if you click on the link to the article, if you're on a smartphone or a tablet, it may not work. But if you're on a full-size computer with a browser, spread your window out just a little bit, just in case it's not taking up the full screen, because I did not do that when I first was reading this article. And they were referencing some figures in the article that I couldn't see, and there were seemingly no links for it. And then when I expanded my browser out a little bit, the links on the side appeared and I clicked on the little book shaped link and it opened up the digital magazine version of the essay archaeological record with all the images right where you would expect to see them. So don't forget to do that if you're not seeing the figures that are represented. Yeah, I, I put a comment to that on our show notes <laughs> because yeah. I was absolutely baffled. I was reading on my iPad and they kept on referencing figures. I'm like, this must be some fault in editing of the archaeological record. And then, you know, when we were talking before recording, you went and pointed out to me, oh, that button on the left. I was like, yeah, I clicked that button on the left a bazillion times. I clicked all the buttons. All I could do is toggle between the uh, the table of contents and this reader view of the article that didn't have any images at all. Yeah. But yeah. These are my computer. And oh, look at that. There there are the images in there all their full color glory. <laughs> Actually, to me, that just highlights one of the slight gotchas with digital in general. And it's not... Mm-hmm just digital because it can certainly happen in the analog world, but making sure things are obvious and accessible and usable to the end user. I mean, uh, I'm recently tech savvy, <laughs> I think, yeah. Yeah. and that I didn't figure that out, <laughs> try it on a different <laughs> device, blow up the screen, click the buttons again, mm-hmm. means that it's not probably as easy as it should be. That's not the fault of the authors of the article at all. It's uh, probably not even really the SAA's fault. It's the fault of this viewer, this uh, yeah, online reason a third party viewer. article reader that they've got that yeah. was not done right. Yeah. Oh, and now that I've done that, I, think I could download the PDF, which would have made me so much happier because I would have downloaded the PDF onto my iPad and read it the way I wanted to in the first place. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, with that note, and and by the way, I'm not some tech genius either. I found it accidentally because I clicked on another link and just wanted to see it bigger and went back to the article and, oh, hey, what are these buttons doing? So, you know, found it just randomly. All right. Well, with that note, I, I should end it like a, like an episode of The Grand Tour and say, well, on that great disappointment, let's end <laughs> this segment and go to segment two back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to episode 165 of the Archaeotech podcast. And we are talking about an article that you can find in our show notes from the SAA Archaeological Record. And it's all about coming up with your digital archaeological strategy for a project. This is a case study from a Monte Alban project. So we're going to talk about that here in a second. But the authors define for them digital archaeology as the methods used to produce, analyze, visualize, or transform digital data. So that's that's what they're talking about here. Anything that you're using to do one of those things helps you do that. And I, and I want to go back real quick to the, to the name of the website and the whole digital aspect in there, because I did go through the website quite a bit. They do highlight a lot of the strategies and things that they used, but the end result of all that and the end result of the entire website, just like this whole project is to learn more about Monte Alban and the questions they were trying to answer about the people and the places that live there. So from that standpoint, I mean, if you really want to be pedantic about it, it's the Digital Anthropology Project. But, you know, it, it really was just the Monte Alban Archaeology Project because it's not about the techniques. It's about the results. And the results say the plaza we use was used this way for this amount of time, you know, X, Y, Z. It's standard. Those kinds of questions in archaeology or the way that we answer those and what we're looking for, I don't think are ever going to change regardless of our technology. But the way we get to those answers is, of course, changing dramatically. And that's what we're talking about. Right. And that's interesting that you're saying the um, the anthropology of it and such. The the criticism that gets leveled a lot, uh, and this is actually mentioned in that ODATE introduction, when people talk about digital archaeology is this, this notion of foregrounding the tools, right? Yeah. To the point of the tools are more important than whatever you learn from them, yeah. whatever questions yeah. you ask, whatever answers you can get. The fact that you did it, with you know, three yeah, D modeling and beautiful rendering and whatnot is in and of itself enough. Um, now it could be if your point is you know is outreach and you want to show people a pretty picture that's going to get them interested in learning more about your site, your project, the the culture, the history, whatever. But yeah, that's a trap that we can fall into really easily. Mm -hmm. Is uh, just using the whiz bang toys because they're whiz bang and they're fun, you know, <laughs> for people like you and me. Yeah. But they, they are really focused on still examining archaeological questions with what they're doing. The mm -hmm. digital tools are being described and being used extensively, but the tools aren't the end result. They aren't really the point even of this article. The fact that they use the tools is a point of the article, 
but what they were able to ask because of those tools that they use. That's really the point. And so I think that's that's a fine line to draw then with digital archaeology writ large, you know. You know, so it becomes a continuum again, right? Between us discarding the fact that you use an iPad for data collection as not really being digital archaeology, even though we find it valuable, all the way to the far other end where the digital takes more importance than the archaeology. The you know you're writing about the tools, and mind you, I we've discussed certain articles on this podcast in the past that discuss the tools, but that's always in the the context of like a how to. Here's what I tried to do, and here's what worked, and here's what didn't. Yeah, they're saying we used all these tools, and these are the things that we did with them. But these are the great questions that we could ask archaeologically and anthropologically based off of the fact that we did them with these tools, and the tools mm-hmm. are critical to them being able to ask those questions, but not the point of it. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to take away from people writing articles like this because this is how other people oh, yeah. learn about all these tools, of course. So I don't want to make it sound like we're trying to say this is a, a negative way to do something by any means. But I I guess I'm just I'm really looking forward to a future where you know, every project uses some form of GPS, right? And in fact, one of the mm. first things they talk about here was using a total station. I mean, we've been using total stations for, in archaeology, I mean, total stations have been around for a long time, but in archaeology, we've probably been using them for what, three decades or more. So, yeah. you know, it's old news, right? It's just expected right. that you're going to use something like that on a project like this, any sort of full scale excavation. I mean, there better be a total station out there or something that can record submeter points in that level of accuracy so yeah to their credit expected. the total station they just say we used it for recording yeah micro topography yeah. they didn't say what kind of total station what programs they used right. to process it that was all assumed just like if you were writing exactly. something in a word processor you're not going to say hey this was written in word or this was written I'm, i might <laughs> say it was written latex but that's because i'm a weirdo <laughs> oh my know, god uh, i I want to do like a joke article to the archaeological record about the digital archaeology of report writing and be like, well, I used Word and I used the thesaurus feature and actually, you know, just like get real technical about it. (laughs) I use tab stops. That's why I'm better than all the rest of you. (laughs) That's right. Tabs, not spaces. (laughs) Get out of here. (laughs) Rookies. Oh, man. That's right. That's right. Uh, anyway, one of the one of the next things that they mentioned too was actually their drone mapping, and that's mm. also that's also almost becoming a little bit normal. You know what I mean? It's falling. Drones are starting to fall into the realm of total stations where they don't. They they still mention they use the DJI Phantom Four Pro and the, some mm-hmm. of their methodology and things like that because it it is important for your strategy. Because I I was happy when they put up some numbers. So they flew a total of forty six flights. I don't know how long they were down there, but forty six flights is is actually quite a bit. And high altitude at forty five to sixty meters, and low altitude at fifteen to twenty five meters. I don't know if those were split evenly, but that's what they did. And they took over 15,000 photos for a total of 105 gigabytes of data. Now, actually 15,000 photos. And I was kind of thinking only 105 gigabytes, but you know, the 4k photos of the DJI that that's probably, it's not taking like raw photos. So, but it's taking good enough photos for some pretty high quality photogrammetry. And they did mention using ground control points, which is really cool Mm -hmm. that those help anchor your model in real space. You can produce a model without anchor control points, without ground control points. But if you put in ground control points, then they measure those with a total station. And now you can take that model and anchor it in the real world. Otherwise, 
because it's just mm-hmm. floating in the ether. But then you can put it in real space and then you can have real measurements and all that stuff based on that. So I thought doing that stuff was kind of cool. But if this were not an article about a digital archaeological strategy, I'm not certain they would have even mentioned the equipment or their methods. They would have just said, hey, we produced yeah. a photogrammetric model about this. And that's how common it's becoming. Yeah, no, actually, that point then kind of goes against what I was just saying, that they, in this case, they are foregrounding the use of some equipment that is becoming increasingly common. I don't think we mentioned with this article, what they're doing is work started in 2017, and it was carried mm-hmm. out to examine the changing role in the and the meaning of the main plaza at Monte Alban through time, right? So they had yeah. some questions. They had some research questions they wanted to ask, and these are the tools that they went to try to answer that. Now, the other reason why this one caught my attention, this article caught my attention, is because in a couple of weeks, I'm supposed to go to Iraq to mm-hmm. uh, go do something very similar to what they're doing. I'm supposed to be going out there to fly a drone to make a new map of a site called Lagash in southern Iraq in the car government. I don't know if you remember from a couple of months ago when I was in Nevada uh, yeah. with you and uh, we were on the archaeology <laughs> show and uh, there was yeah. an article about a bunch of sites in Digar. Anyhow, that's down in the south. And it's a really large site, around 450 hectares. So we've been having these meetings discussing the equipment. Uh, interestingly enough, the equipment that we're going to be using is also a DJI Phantom 4 Pro, just mm-hmm. like they used in this article. And so we're trying to get a sense of how long it's going to take, how many flights we're going to have to have. So this is all good information for me to have to strategize my own work. Mm-hmm. And. One of the things that that struck me is that, you know, because we're dealing with such a big area on this Iraq project, the initial pass through, the person that ran it through drone deploy was talking about 80 meters, which seems too high for me, but it's a huge area that we got to cover. This particular, the multi-album project is interesting to me in that they're doing these two levels, as far as I know, because they have two different levels of resolution that they want, because they don't just want the Mm -hmm. topography. What I'm looking at 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 Lagash is I'm just going to be doing the the topography, you know, what the site looks like. And then we can get some good topo, some good contour maps off of that. What they were doing here with this is not just the topographical features, but also in much more detail because it has standing stone architecture. They were doing Mm -hmm. closer in work, low altitude work around those buildings on the site. And then those buildings then become what they move forward with in some of these later stages of this project, which is really cool. But, you know, to your point about the, this stuff becoming, you know, commonplace on so many archeological projects in my preparations for going to Iraq, Earlier today, I was watching a video, very good one, I had a link it as well, put together by a land surveying company, talking to other land surveyors about, hey, do you want to get into drone surveying? Mm -hmm. Here's what the costs are, here's what the considerations are, here's what you need to know, how you do. They also end up recommending that same DJ Phantom 4 Pro (laughs) because of its simplicity. I mean, this is, but this is from 2018. So in 2018, this person knew enough about doing drone surveying professionally as a land surveyor that he could put together a very well argued very easy to understand hour long presentation that's you know up on youtube now of how to go about it for other land surveyors so it's not something new and so you're right this is we should be getting over this at this point even though i'm mm-hmm. going to be taken out to do the drone surveying and you know uh, geez i would like it to be the high tech whiz bang thing that 
I've always wanted it to be, but it's it's yeah. probably not so high tech, so whiz bang anymore because so many people are doing it. Well, and in, including in your strategy too, which is something people haven't necessarily had to think about before, except for like logistics from vehicles and, and lodging and stuff like that standpoint. We always have to think about that for remote archaeology projects. But also just looking at the numbers here, which is why I'm glad they put this thing down because people are like, oh, I've got a phantom or the university has a phantom and, and we can bring one of those out on the project. Yeah. Don't bring just one like 32 gig SD card or micro SD card. It probably takes a micro and don't just bring that, bring like 20 yeah. of those. Right. <laughs> because and, and then bring something to dump those onto as well, because you don't yeah. want to go through multiple airport security checkpoints with your all of your data on your micro SD cards. No, that is just no, a no, really no. bad idea. So no, that was one of the yeah, things I brought up yesterday in our in our pre-planning yeah. meeting. I was like, we need to have at a minimum two portable hard drives that we can dump all our images yeah. onto nightly. And then we'll send them back. You know, I, we're not all flying in from the same place, so we'll send them on different flights back just in case something happens. Yeah. And I don't know what your guys's, you know, lodging situation is going to be too, but you also have to think about batteries. How many do you have? Mm -hmm. How many flights can you do a day on the batteries do you that you have? Can you charge those batteries in the field or do you have to charge them up at night when you're in the, wherever you're staying? Stuff like that. Oh yeah. We've been having back and forth emails about that. Currently <laughs> we've got four batteries. I'm arguing for two to four more. Mm -hmm. And basically, you know, uh, that, that device should get 17 to 20 minutes per battery charge, uh, which basically means, yeah, ideally. So I'm rounding down to 15 minutes. And mm -hmm. so that means that an hour flight time per four batteries. And then we can calculate right. out from there. And then how many days we're at that 80 meter elevation that they calculated the other day, that would be eight to 10 days. We have three weeks total. So, you know, we're just doing a lot of very basic math here, but it's a balance between time, time in the field, expense. And like you said, can we actually get these things charged? Yes, we mm -hmm. have good electricity. We'll be able to get them charged. But if we're going to stay on schedule, it means that we got to get all four to eight batteries charged fully every day. Because yeah. we're going to use them up fully every day. Right. That's part of the, the whole process. Well, and the other, the other things you have to take into concern with uh, battery life is the frequency with which you're taking photos, which also brings into concern the type of micro SD card as well. I, I found this mm. out the hard way when I had my uh, DJI Inspire Pro. It was my first real high quality drone with a you know, 4K camera on it. I popped mm -hmm. just like a, a micro SD card in there. And it almost wouldn't take the photos in high, the highest resolution because it didn't, the card wasn't writing fast enough right. for the machine to do it. And so I, I had actually, I was doing some photogrammetry and I had set it up to take pictures on an interval that was too fast for the card to write. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, keeping that in mind, you know, a higher altitude actually for this larger survey is actually a pretty good thing for you because you can take fewer pictures at a higher altitude at a longer interval because you're just looking mm -hmm. for an overlap and the higher you are, the bigger your field of view. So, you know, fewer pictures. And yeah. unless you're, unless you're going 30 miles an hour, then you're going to be taking pictures pretty fast, but you're probably not. So, no. so, so the, the two other big factors, as long as you got a good high write speed SD card is wind, wind will take down a drone battery like nothing because sure that yeah. looks like a rock solid photo, but it is working hard to stay steady. And then the frequency with which you're taking photos, cause that also you're more than likely taking pretty high resolution photos and that burns a lot of power. So to be honest, I'd probably predict about 10 minutes per battery just, just to be on the safe side. And if you get an hour, call yourself lucky. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
because you're you're also going to have the out and back time too. So you're gonna oh, yeah. you're gonna program drone deploy, and your your last transect battery life wise may end, you know, a long ways away from you, and then the drone's got to come back doing nothing, dead walking if you will, dead flying uh, all the way back to you, and that battery life has to be taken into account. That could be a minute. You know, when you're mm-hmm. looking at 10 to 15 minutes, that's a, you know, 10 to that's a big chunk five of it, to 10% yeah. of your battery. <laughs> oh, and don't forget the drones, they ascend faster than the descent. Oh, yeah. So getting it up to 80 meters is going to take me 20 seconds, half a minute, maybe getting it back yeah. down is going to take me two minutes at least. Well, not so- if you run the battery down. Yeah, well, no. I mean, I could just shut the uh, the rotors off, and I could get down within a couple seconds. But just just get a big net out there, <laughs> drop it over the net to save battery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just uh, put it over and try to catch it. Nice. nice. It's not like it's a big drone or anything that's going to hurt like hell. Oh man, yeah. All right. Well, that's about it for this segment. Let's come back on the other side and wrap up this article. This has really spawned some some good discussion. And that's the whole point of an article like this, because people don't think about these really minute details unless they've really had experience with it. So I'm glad we're I'm glad we're talking about this. Let's come back on the other side and finish this up back in a minute. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the final segment of episode 165 of the Archaeotech podcast. And we are wrapping up this discussion on developing your own digital archaeological strategy based on the article linked in the show notes from the SA Archaeological Record of, well, what, August or September of 20, I think September of 2021 just came out. So, yep, September 21, uh, volume 21, number four. Yeah. And, you know, something I wanted to mention, because Paul's going to, if you look at the show notes, there's a link to that video Paul was talking about with the survey company and and some things to consider when you're doing these drone surveys, is archaeology is a little late to the game with some technologies. There's very few things that are being developed in-house. Now, maybe some strategies or techniques using certain technologies are being developed by archaeologists because they haven't been used in this way. That is 100% valid. But basic use and function of some of these things other industries have been doing this for a lot longer than than archaeologists have. So if you're curious about these things, just, I mean, Google it. I hate to say that, but Google it and find the videos, find other industries. And it might not say archaeology on it, but that's probably for the best because these people know what they're doing. They've, you know, worked out all the kinks and they just they know the best practices. Of course, you got to put your archaeological lens on it. If they're saying Mm -hmm. if it's a surveying company and they're like, fly it a thousand feet over the ground because, you know, all you care about is where the roads and the fence lines, <laughs> you know, think about what you can see as an archaeologist. Maybe that's true on a Nevada project. If all you're doing is a road survey, yeah, a thousand feet is probably acceptable. But 
you know, think about what you're trying to see. You know, this this Monte Alban project is a really good example of that. Like you said, you don't need to fly that low in Iraq because you're not looking for minute details in the stone and rocks and things like that. Like these guys mm-hmm. are at Monte Alban. That's why they're flying such a low altitude pass. So, yeah, no, uh, back to that surveying video. One of the things that they that they do mention, it comes up kind of obliquely in the in the video, but it definitely comes out in the Q&A at the end of the webinar, is that they use multiple systems. Yeah. Mm. They, yeah. They're using the drones because most of the work that you do as a land surveyor can actually be done much more quickly and efficiently that way. But there's certain detail work, things around like where power lines run or where drainages, you know, or drains rather, or uh, gutters run that, yeah, you could do that photogrammetrically, mm-hmm. but you can do it much more accurately and in some ways faster with your total station. And then they combine those things at the end. And I I just like that because, you know, we do have a tendency to get stuck in this is the best tool rather than this is the most appropriate tool for this particular job or this particular part of the job. And seeing that, you know, land surveying is compared to archaeology is a much bigger industry in the U.S. at least and probably worldwide that they are dealing with their own knowledge and their own expectations and time constraints that aren't unlike what we have in archaeology to get things done to to have producibles at the end it, it was just it was nice to see that it you know other people from a different field thinking the same sort of ways like you said you have to put the archaeological lens onto it but geez there's a lot that you can learn by looking outside of just archaeology oh yeah yeah, you know, this isn't a, a drone episode, although it, I feel like it's one of our it's favorite. Kind of topics. almost turned into one. <laughs> I know, but one thing I was I was thinking about, especially for the the Iraq project. I don't know if you guys are doing this level of survey, but I was thinking of the survey video, and I haven't seen it yet. But when you're doing a big land survey and and you're looking for either overall topography or really big features, you know, you're you're not looking for the minute detailed stuff yet at this level. Sometimes fixed wing is actually the way to go. Because fixed wing is faster, more battery efficient. It's not trying to center itself and and right itself with the wind. Still has stabilizers on their cameras, but it's just it'll it'll fly it at higher altitudes at a fi- at a faster speed with only one propeller versus four that are trying to maintain stability at all times. And you can just get a lot more time and distance out of the battery and and still get the same quality of photographs. Now, you're never going to fly fixed wing at 20 meters. I guess you could if you're in a desert environment, but people don't generally do that <laughs> because you're too close to the ground, right, for that kind of speed. I don't think cameras and cards that are typically available in those types of machines can handle that kind of speed that close to the ground and not have any blurring effects. So um, even at a really high shutter speed. I can tell you're an aviation <laughs> guy because they do talk about that. And those are the exact things that they say. It's like, well, it's nice. generally the uh, fixed wind drones are more expensive. There's some concerns about the cameras and uh, the fact that you don't have like a, a gimbal in the same way that you do mm-hmm. on a quadcopter. But if you need to cover a large tract of land and less detail, they are maybe a very good option. But again, like you just said, you can't fly too close to the ground because you get motion blur. You got to be up yeah. high. So yeah, in, in our case, you know, Lagash is some 450 hectares roughly. Mm-hmm. So a thousand acres. That's a wow. big site. That's, that's a, uh, a fixed wing might actually be better, especially considering that we're plotting out, you know, 80 meter elevation to fly. A fixed yeah. wing might be a better choice. Problem is we don't have one. 
I mean, it comes down to access, right? They are way more expensive. And especially for one that can handle wind, like you can buy cheaper ones with cheaper cameras and smaller engines, but they're made out of foam and a five mile an hour wind will destroy them. So just mm. like just like lighter drones, right? So, and other there's another complexity too. Even if you do buy a $10,000 fixed wing drone with a high speed camera on it, you might be wondering, how am I going to fly this thing? Because flying a drone is relatively easy. When you let go of the sticks, it just hovers and you just have to learn the controls and, and figure it out. And, and you can get used to that. And it's a lot more forgiving when it comes to mistakes. And there's really good software out there to actually control the drone. So you can just put in a flight path and say, go. And it just does yeah. the whole thing for you, which is obviously nobody in their right mind would do a manual photogrammetric survey. You would just take way too many photos or not enough in certain areas and get it all wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, planning it out. And, <laughs> oh yeah, it would be terrible. Yeah. But for fixed wing, they also have the same thing. The higher end ones, like I think Trimble, uh, is it Trimble? I think Trimble actually makes one, or at least they highlight one that has some Trimble geospatial stuff inside of it. That will actually fly a course for you. You might have to do some, like they usually hand launch with a takeoff and then you just hit go and the engine starts up and, and it takes off and flies its own course. And then usually they just glide back with no landing gear onto the ground. And that's pretty much it. And the propellers are designed to fold back and not get destroyed. And they're, they're really good these days. So don't think the flying skills are any more rigorous when flying a fixed wing, especially if you got good software to control it. If you don't have software, yeah, they're much more difficult to fly. You have to know how to fly a plane, to be honest, and yep. and understand those mechanics. But if you don't have the software, it's like the old radio control planes that you and I cut oh, our yeah. teeth on. Yeah. And you'll you'll cut a lot more than that if you know how to fly it. <laughs> so <laughs> especially if you're using uh, one of the old uh, internal combustion engines and you gotta oh my start God. it with the chicken stick or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My my oh, grandpa yeah. had this old piece of like thick rubber to start his he was really into model airplanes, built all his own planes and built his own radios even and just like was crazy with it. And he for the longest time, I don't remember a time when he didn't have this, but he was missing a piece of his index finger, just like a little bit of it, because he got caught up in a prop that started when he didn't think it was going to. He was going in for oh, another goodness. strike and it took off the end of his finger. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think know. if you go to an RC airfield, you're going to find way more, you know, not 10 fingered people or not like <laughs> nine and three quarters. <laughs> All the old timers that were using yep. uh, gas engines instead of electric, right? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the last half of the segment, some of the other stuff that they did with the 3D yeah. data that they were collecting, because a lot of this, a lot of the rest of what they did was actually produced from the combination of the total station, the drone data, and probably, I would imagine, a lot of other photographs that they didn't really mention. Again, a technology that's not mentioned. I'm sure they had a digital SLR out there and took a crap ton of photographs, but they just didn't mention that, right? So, hmm. and why would they? But, the you know, the drone takes... Sure, it's probably an off-angle photo. You know, it's probably angled a little bit, and then they fly over all these passes to get the sides of things. And when you put it mm -hmm. all together, it comes together. But sometimes you might have to fill in with other stuff, and that's one of the things that they did. I hadn't really seen this term too many times, but they they said they created the 3D model, and then they were filling in the gaps of the features and the structures to make them quote watertight. So you right. can there's different lighting techniques you can use in the software to say are there actually any holes in my in my model like actual holes in your model where there's no data and then they'd you know see if they had the data for that from another photograph or, or something like that and then when they did that they did what they call a volumetric study using 
the the vol the literal volume of the of the features and then comparing that with past studies to find how the sizes and shapes of these things have changed through time, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, right. Um, just as a side note, that that watertight, I've seen that term used in 3D modeling and in 3D huh. printing. And yeah. it basically means, you know, you don't have any gaps. That's what we're talking about with holes that, that you fill them in. And usually when you have like some area that you haven't surveyed or some area that the camera couldn't see or the sensors or whatever kind couldn't see, you can use your own brain to figure it out. And I've had to deal with that mm-hmm. with like Landsats or uh, SRTM DEMS trying to map stuff on earth for, you know, from satellite photography, satellite imagery, where, you know, you've got a spot that for whatever reason, you know, maybe it's too vertical. That's a good reason. Mm-hmm. You have that a lot. Um, there's no data for it. And so instead of going down to zero or null, you say, no, it's actually halfway between, you know, this side and that side and you fill it in. Mm. And then that's kind of work gets done in things like Blender a lot, but then they're doing these. So this actually gets to the point of them doing the, uh, the two different elevations. If my supposition that they're doing those low elevations and all those oblique shots, it was because of the yeah. architecture. They're doing that to fill in and make highly detailed architectural models, mm-hmm. which they then for use sure. like what you said for, volumetric study amongst a few other display methods that I thought were really cool that they talked about. Again, nothing earth shattering, nothing that you haven't seen before, but a good, robust argument for the the, the end-to-end digitalness of their workflow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And two of those other studies too remind me a lot of a relatively common thing in archaeology using GIS, which is a viewshed analysis, you know, basically mm. creating a, a, a viewpoint somewhere on your map and then having the map shade in, you know, what can't you see if you're standing right here topographically, right? You're you're on this mm-hmm. point, what's invisible to you? And we, we use that a lot for like historic and prehistoric features and structures where, you know, is, is the thing that we're building over here going to be in view of this thing? And does that view, if so negatively impact the character of it or something like that or the setting or the feeling, you know, one of those typical National Register or NEPA qualifications. Yeah, that's interesting. You're using it in the CRM context, you know, to, to find out like what impact, say you have a sacred site, is that radio tower going to be visible from the sacred site? Is that going to negatively yeah. impact the, the, the sacredness of that site? Sure. I've used it and seen it used in, uh, in you know, more purely archaeological studies. It's like, can you see this hill fort from that hill fort? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. if uh, invaders are coming <laughs> across the fields, mm-hmm. can these two hill forts be in communication, light flares or whatever, to indicate that something's afoot? So, yeah, but anyhow, the intervisibility gets used a lot of different ways in um, view sheds, get used a lot of different ways in archaeology, CRM and and academic. Yeah. Again, like I said, it's not something new, but they used it as part of this and they used it because they had data that was amenable to it. Well, and I feel like the new aspect of this, new-ish anyway, is you often think of those visibility and, and view shed analyses on a larger scale. Like you said, is this hill fort visible from that hill fort kind of thing? Whereas when you get down to the smaller scale, the the more micro scale versus the macro scale, GIS becomes I would say more difficult to use, not that it's incapable of doing it, but I would say more difficult because we often haven't collected the data to that level of resolution to be able to do that. But when you start producing these photogrammetric models and these 3D models that they mentioned this 
future things that they're doing. They're they're working with some other companies to actually produce virtual reality models from the stuff that they've created to, mm-hmm. I mean, literally step into these models. And they were able to do this intervisibility study in the archaeoacoustical study without stepping into the model, but they actually can step into it in some cases and literally stand on a platform and say, what can I see from here? And then do an acoustical study and do the same thing. What does it sound mm-hmm. like? How would sound waves propagate around this area if I'm standing here versus 10 feet away? Yeah, right. And uh, that's interesting, actually, that you mentioned their indivisibility isn't between this plaza and, you know, another site in the valley. They're talking about indivisibility within the plaza, Yeah, which then allows you to ask certain interesting questions about, you know, the, the the, the, the use of that space, particularly the ritual use of that space. Mm-hmm. You know, I know you've never been to church, but for anybody that's ever been to church, <laughs> Not in a long know, time. where you sit in the building uh, affects how you can see and hear what the priest is saying. Yeah. And th- that kind of a, that kind of an understanding of the, the use of the space and how vision is uh, is affected by the the, the, the physical space and uh, the buildings in this case or pillars or whatever you've got going on in the church mm-hmm. and then also the acoustical properties of the area really affects how people experience that and that gets us back to that anthropological question that what we mostly care about is how do how would people in the past have experienced this? What was their their role there? What why were they there? What were they doing there? How would they have been part of whatever was going on there? Yeah. And so they are actually using this then. They don't actually go into detail in the article about any kinds of results that they find from this, but they do say, "Hey, we're using it for these purposes, intervisibility and archaeoacoustics, which is, again, cool. And again, also only possible because they've got good data that started and was controlled and processed every step of the way digitally. Again, strong argument in favor of maintaining that term, digital archaeology. Absolutely. So... I love the discussions this is put together here. And one of the last things that they actually mentioned almost as an, I feel like it was almost as an afterthought again in the article was the 3D printing, which is Mm. itself becoming more and more common in archaeology. But, you know, when it comes down to actual usability of 3D models like this, unless you've got a really big 3D printer, producing this plaza would be either really small or lots of pieces you got to put together. Yeah. Unless you've got, like I said, a really big 3D printer. And then, you know, they work at a university. There might be a one that will do a one foot or two foot cube 3D print, which would be pretty big. But that being said, even if you're putting together smaller models or you're, or you're putting together pieces to actually construct this thing and glue it together, imagine when you're back in university and somebody's telling you about Monte Alban and you've got a slide up on the screen or a, or a movie or even you're watching or something that you're seeing, that's one thing. And, and kids are on their smartphones and they're falling asleep and, and, you know, they're just not paying attention, but put a model in front of them and say, look at this and, and, and touch it, feel it, pick it up, pick up the temple and, and see what it does and then move it around. And, and, and let's explore the different configurations that may have been possible and, and, and look how they did it and, I, I don't know, the teaching ability and the excitability of, you know, getting people excited about stuff like that is mm-hmm. huge, I think, with 3D printing. No, and, you know, they do have, now that I can see the pictures, <laughs> they do have some <laughs> images of the 3D printer, which looks to be a fairly large one, but it's oh, a regular, right. you know, extruded plastic, like, what you know, you can buy, like, well, I've got sitting on my desk, only larger than this one. It is a big one. And 
the what I'm seeing here just reminds me of, you know, you, you've been to places where you see like a reconstruction of the city, right? Yeah. Laid out in front yeah. of you, like the, the famous one for Rome. Right. Or you've seen like model train sets and there's something that's just really engaging about them. You know, even though like the model train set is a very old tech, you stand there and you look at it and you just get your, you, you get absorbed into it. So I see that this as a teaching and or engagement tool is really strong or potentially very strong because just looking at the photographs of this, I kind of want to, like you were saying, pick up and hold and handle and turn around these things. I don't know if you remember, um, we had Alexei Vranich on a couple years ago, and he was talking about doing this with a building for Tiwanaku. And mm. his 3D printing was using a different material. It wasn't the extruded plastic. And that was part of the process was using a different material to try to get the sense of how the blocks fit together and how the building actually looked because it had been totally dismantled uh, or almost totally dismantled. Yeah. But I definitely see that tactile sense. Really, for me, I'm a very tactile person. When I see these photographs they've got in the article, that, that excites me. Mm -hmm. And before we run way too long, let's just mention briefly <laughs> that they also say they use the 3D models, not just for making 3D prints, but also for making 3D models that they posted up on Sketchfab, annotated yeah. in some cases, bilingually in English and Spanish, so that you as the viewer can go in and explore it on your computer at your own leisure. You don't actually have to go and hold or print out you know, these 3D objects, which again is something that is only possible in this whole digital workflow that they have, but then provides additional avenues for exploration and education. And I'm all about that, that that is really kind of very cool. And I'm glad that they did that. Yeah, I like the Sketchfab stuff so much. I, I pulled it out of the article and dropped it in the show notes. So Absolutely. it's uh, it's really cool. Yeah, really neat. If you've never even used Sketchfab, man, you can just manipulate things. And, and they do have it really well annotated, like Paul said. And it's just, uh, it's it's really well done. So, and it's a good example between the website and all the links and resources they have of how to share this kind of thing, right? Ah. Uh, how to get it out there and not just keep it in your dissertation or your article or this article or, you know, things that, that are inaccessible to people. Sure, they've probably written, you know, dozens of scholarly articles about this stuff that we don't have access to because they're in journals that we can't read. That's for their professional reasons. That's for, you know, the, their their own academic careers, of course, but also professional reasons to put that stuff out. But then they've also put all this other stuff out for anyone in the world to see. And it's I really can respect that about a project. And that's one of the other big things that digital archaeology, for lack of a better way to say it, provides is the ability to relatively easily share this stuff with a wider audience mm -hmm. that you know, maybe homebound, maybe, you know, COVID bound in their own country <laughs> and can't get to anywhere. <laughs> and, you know, who knows? So yeah. this is a really good example of that. No, I agree wholeheartedly. And uh, that, that yeah. outreach that this digital process enables, facilitates, I think is, is a, mm -hmm. a really strong selling point. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we will end this what we thought was going to be a shorter recording, this really long recording. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you enjoyed it. That. 
<laughs> I know it was a, I enjoyed it. I hope everybody else did I too. It was a really yeah, fun yeah. discussion. Yeah. So anyway, as usual, the links are in the show notes. You can find the article in the show notes and uh, hopefully you've got access to it. If not, you have access to all the resources they put out. So don't feel sad about not being able to see the article. Just take a look at their website, Sketchfab and some of the other stuff. So you'll get a pretty good idea of what they did. And with that, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash architect. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh.